I think you should just like not have any witty banter. Just like let that literally be the first thing they hear when they start. Or we could just tell people, I don't think we have any witty banter for this week. No, no banter. Let's just get into it. Okay. <laughs> well, welcome back to this week's episode. We uh, we took a week off just because we have had, uh, just coming off of Easter, it's a fun time where we get to come together and see a lot of people that we um, uh, just enjoy. And so we had a great service Sunday uh, of Easter and everything was good. We had a really good time at Lord's Supper on Good Friday and getting to hang around a bunch of people to do that. Um, but with all of that going on and then the week before and the week of, we just kind of said, man, we don't have time to come up with, you know, 45 minutes to an hour worth of content that's actually relevant to your lives. (laughs) And so we thought, well, what's, what's, what's wrong with taking one week off? So, uh, hopefully you guys went back and listened to a different episode or maybe you listened to somebody else's podcast last week, whatever it looks like. But, uh, we're kind of back this week and we've been bouncing around several things to kind of talk about. And some of them may pop up later in podcasts. We're hoping that we're going to talk to brother Paul, maybe next week, get him to come in and talk a little bit about some Baptist history. Cause I think that's really relevant for us as a church, knowing where we came from, especially in Texas, but also just the importance of, of what he calls sticking and staying. Um, and I think that'll be a good time for us to chime in on that. But um, so Funny thing, Travis, my wife actually sent me a meme yesterday and you were here when I played it, right? It was like a oh, the, like the a video? TikTok reel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. About when you get over 35, you either have to like be an expert on World War II history or smoke meat, right? Yep. That was literally that's literally the only two things I've been thinking about for like the past 3 or 4 months. I was like, maybe I should learn more history. And then yesterday we were at Dirt Cheap and they had a smoker and I was like, ooh, ooh nice. I really want to smoke some meat. I was like, so I'm, I guess I'm falling into that. Did you get it? No, because it was 50 bucks. It was missing a door latch. That's like 90% of what you need <laughs> for that to work. How big of a smoker was it? It was pretty good size. Yeah. But I mean, it's normally like a, I don't know, three or $400 smoker. <laughs> but was it like one of the pill ones or like a long one for ribs? Uh, it was like a pill one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I want a long one for ribs if I do it because yeah, I want to do ribs and like big old briskets and stuff. But yep. the my problem is I don't have time. I just don't have time. Or yeah. money. Most of the people that I know that, you know, take smoking meat really seriously, like they get up all hours of the night to like check on it and add water and, and you know, I don't even know what all they do, but they're waking up at like 3 a.m. to work on their brisket. And it's just like, I mean, I love brisket, but. I don't know if I want to do that much. Work. Yeah. <laughs> just go buy it from Brendan. You just go buy it from <laughs> Brendan's Barbecue. Which Shout out to Brendan's Barbecue. If you have not had that here locally in Nacogdoches, I recommend that you stop by and visit with him. He's a great guy. Uh, we should get him on the podcast. That would be fun. He is... He's not at Calvary, but... He's not... Yeah, he's not. We can talk about barbecue and faith and... And music. And music, He's yeah. a big music dude, too. So, um, no, Brendan's a, a great family man. It really does... A good job at what he does and and studies it up. Hey, did you see he had a, a smoked queso sausage the other day? Yeah, I did see that. <sighs> now I'm hungry. <laughs> I should have went for Brendan's for my birthday lunch and not Slotsky's, but okay. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, so 
my birthday was last week, so I've turned 38 now. So now I guess I need to You're three years behind on I'm the three years behind. So I either need to start or, brushing up on history or smoking meat. So, um, but you know, brother Paul did that Brenham trip not too long back, talked a lot about church history. And I was like, man, this is so interesting. I've never been interested in history in my life, <laughs> but, uh, Chuck Medley might be a good one to get on the podcast too, because he's super history buff. I didn't um, realize that. Oh yeah. He's, he loves that stuff. You know who Thomas Kidd is? Mm-hmm. He wrote a two-volume series on American history. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I just would love to read sort of his take. I mean, it's meant for like a college textbook, but for those who don't know, he was at Baylor. Now he's at Midwestern Seminary. Um, so he's a historian, but comes at it from kind of the Christian perspective and I think handles topics very well. So I would... I've been thinking about ordering his U.S. history books and kind of plowing through those. So I wonder what it would take to get some of these guys on a phone call and actually just record a conversation with them. Probably not a lot, especially if we, you know, pump their newest book. Pump their newest book to our to our fan base. That's what. Yeah, <laughs> we have fourteen people listening, <laughs> fourteen active <laughs> listeners. On, um, so we do this for you guys, but do share this. I mean, if you find it relevant. Have you checked the numbers of how not many recently. downloads have actually happened? No, not recently. I mean, we're we're above 20. I thought we were above like 300 like a month ago. Well, that's like total plays, I think. But well, that's no. not like someone who listened all the way through. Well, no, that's just out of each episode, we've only got like maybe 20 or 30 people. Hmm. Yeah. But that's we're still starting. We're still fresh. Oh, yeah. And so any any small thing takes a long time to get rolling. But but people have been joining it and you guys have been uh, having a good time with it. And so we're going to continue kind of our conversations today. Uh, like we said, Brother Paul hopefully will be jumping in here in the next couple of weeks. And then we've got some ideas about uh, serving. We've got some ideas about uh, just different topics of theology and life. And even as we're coming into the summer, maybe some family things. So who knows? But today, today's one that we, uh, so Travis was actually sent an article uh, by a buddy and it is, I think, pretty essential for us to understand today, especially in our culture, being that we're in a college town um, and trying to do ministry in a college town, just some of the struggles that come along with that. Many of us know it. Um, but the article essentially is looking at the uh, deconstruction of faith um, by young people. And when we say young people, that's a combination of not just Gen Z um kiddos, but it's also like millennials, young millennials, um, and just kind of this whole idea of faith deconstruction. So um, Travis made a bunch of notes on this, so I'm going to kind of bump it to him real quick and just say, you know, give us an overall definition of what we're saying when we say a deconstruction of faith. So the definition that he uses is a crisis of Christian faith that leads to either a reevaluation of Christianity or sometimes a total abandonment of Christianity. Mm. And then he makes the note that um, deconstruction is not synonymous with deconversion. So we're not necessarily saying someone who's left the faith. And I think he gives the example of someone who grew up like in a more prosperity gospel understanding of things. Um, And then maybe they come to some crisis of faith, some tragedy happens or something like that. And they realize like, oh, the way I thought about Christianity may not be right, and you have to sort of deconstruct things that you thought were true. Um, 
you know, it could be something like in the prosperity gospel of like, if I just, you know, pray enough things, like good things will happen to me. Like, no, that's not guaranteed. So that person has to deconstruct their, um, I guess, part of their worldview, their theology, how they think about things. But then, it, like the definition said, it can also be someone who completely abandons the faith. So I don't know. Did you know who Rhett and Link are? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so these guys, I don't remember. Huge YouTubers. I yeah, mean, huge YouTubers. They had a massive audience, but they, was it Crew? They were involved with some sort of college campus ministry for a while. Yeah. Were real zealous. And then two or three years ago now, um, they came out and said that, like, hey, this was an important part of who we were, but, like, we have completely walked away from the faith. Like, we don't identify as Christians anymore. And but, so they were kind of some of the first ones who used the phrase deconstruction, and it sort of caught on, and there's been a series of different artists and musicians and other people who have deconstructed and either walked away or, you know, maybe they're embracing, like, Eastern Orthodoxy and not Protestantism or something yeah. to that effect. So there's well, a there's a spectrum. Well, and I think that's a movement. I don't want to say a movement, but I think that's something that we've seen going on for a while now, uh, especially if you get into, say, the kind of alternative Christian music scene from back in the day. Um, that was a huge push was uh, an alternative style of music to contemporary Christian music that also had faith elements to it. I think. 90% of those bands that I listened to growing up, there's like, oh yeah, I mean, that was, that was important to us then, but now, eh, I mean, that was, yeah, well, even some of the like, say edgier, but like musicians like Gunger. Yeah. They wrote that song, like beautiful things that was sung at like, like everybody, every, was, every church was playing that. They're like, oh, we're going to be the most contemporary thing in the world. Yeah. And then he walked away. Yeah. And it was, so I guess that's kind of the interesting part is because we've, you know, we, we, we read documentaries, we read articles, we look at these things and there's always that kind of underlying tone that people ask is kind of that whole idea of why, like, why are people walking away or why are people even considering this? And I mean, no joke, even as pastors, I think as pastors, there's a lot of pastors that go through this. Um, we was, I was listening to the Mars Hill podcast, the special when they did the Joshua Harris thing. Mm -hmm. And you listen to a lot of Joshua Harris. I mean, he was the prominent. Yeah, like, he was a poster boy. Yeah, he was like, oh, this is what it means to love Jesus and date and all this stuff. And he was kind of like, forget all that. Like, that. that's not even. And so I think that, I think even as people who are deeply involved in evangelical church, evangelical life, there is still this um, idea that it, just doesn't take much for people to walk away. And I don't know if it is the church as an organization that's really one of the causes for it or if it's, and I know that he, well, so that's kind of the point of the article. It's yeah. The, the title is five real reasons young people are deconstructing their faith. And it's written by a guy named Joel Terrell, mm -hmm. um, who works for a guy named Carrie Newhoff. Carrie is real big in sort of the Christian leadership space. He's got a really great podcast. Um, if you're into that kind of stuff, um, it's on his website, which is just carrynewhoff.com. Carrie is C-A-R-E-Y. Newhoff is N-I-E-U-W-H-O-F.com. Yeah. So, yeah, Carrie Newhoff, um, if you want to read the article for yourself. But, yeah, so that's kind of what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Is we're going to go over his five reasons, and we can chime in where we agree or disagree and just see where this goes. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, so I think, you know, being the guy on staff here who works with younger people, I see it more from the perspective of parents or grandparents who are mm-hmm. looking at their kids or grandkids and they're just like, I don't understand the massive cultural shift that's happening, um, particularly around faith or not having faith. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. Like I did a lot of college ministry even before coming here and I'm sort of used to this. Like my mm-hmm. minor was philosophy. I talked to people who deconstructed before deconstruction was the popular term to use. <laughs> Um, so like, I'm totally used to this conversation and comfortable in this space. Like, I mean, it makes me sad, but I'm used to these conversations and and kind of understand where people are coming from, but hopefully this can help maybe some parents or grandparents understand why we see this radical shift, like why we see these polls where the church is just decreasing. Yeah. Uh, I think that is, I think, cause we, we brought this up even in a meeting last night of, you know, reaching young people is not the same as it used to be. Um, and getting, getting young people into your church is not the same as it used to be. And there's a thousand reasons. So let's look at, let's look at some of that right now. So let's look at number one. The very first one is that trust in large institutions is declining all across the board. So I guess if you want to try to put a positive spin on this, this one isn't necessarily something that's the church's fault. Yeah. Um, he talks about government. It's like nobody trusts politicians. Big business kind of automatically has like a bad name, regardless of what they're doing to benefit society. Um, media, no yeah. one trusts the news anymore. In church, uh, so while we fall under, you know, this category of just the large institution, um, it's kind of like just an unintended consequence of cultural's attitude towards these big institutions. Well, and I don't think that this is something that we can blow over because I think one of the, one of the trends that we do is we look at this and go, Oh, well, you know, young people will have to get over that. We're seeing that the younger generation is one of the largest generations that we've ever seen. And if the overall ideology is, you know, from a business perspective, I'm not going to wear a suit and tie into work. Well, you no, I'm not going to do it. Like I'll go work somewhere else. If your only pull to keep your company and your business alive is to trust a younger generation and you can't get people to come and I mean, how we're looking at this unemployment rate. We keep saying, well, people just don't want to work. We've looked at it even from the aspect of, well, let's crunch the numbers. Like my parents were able to buy their home in like 1980s for $40,000, you know, $50,000, 60, something like that. And now they could sell it for like $120,000. I mean, a, a, a lower middle class family could afford that home, but we're talking 1,200 square feet in, in Arkansas, you know? <laughs> uh, here in Nacogdoches, the housing market has accelerated, golly, 20% just over the past year. And uh, a young couple only bringing in, you know, $60,000 annually can't almost afford a single home in the community in an area where they would want to raise their kids. So guess what? They're not going to uh, settle in certain companies. They're not going to do certain things because they want to be able to raise their families. Right. So I think there's from even like that business standpoint, I think that that's going to be a huge struggle over the next couple of years. But I mean, I saw this whenever I was working like in banks just every year. It's like the, 
dress code got a little less strict. Yeah. Because they were hiring younger and younger people. And it's like, oh, yeah, now tattoos are fine to show when they weren't before and yeah. things like that. So culture is adapting by necessity um, to various things like that. But then the question is, how does the church respond to this? So, like, in this section, he says that 51% of people, 55 and up, thought well of, like, your average church leader. Yeah. But only 24% of 18 to 35 four-year-olds thought well of church leaders yeah so i mean i've thought about this like when people talk about like going on to sfa's campus and stuff it's like yeah. you got to realize that three out of four students or more than that automatically don't think well of me when i say like oh yeah i'm, I'm a minister at this church like three out of four yeah and then your remaining you know 24 percent chances are they're already plugged in. Like if they're a solid believer, like they're already going somewhere else. Yeah. And we're seeing those numbers fall off like crazy. When we talk with other churches and we talk with other ministry leaders, it's, it's not that we're sitting there and everybody's doing fantastic. I mean, I think everyone's in a position of struggle, but even from the larger institution aspects of it, even school, I think you're having a even deconstruction, it doesn't state it in here, but I think you're having a deconstruction of education right now. I think that you've got a lot of young people coming out of institutionalized public schools and they're going, why do I want to go and sit in a class and learn more stuff? I can go pick up a trade and make more money doing that and not have to spend the next four years. You know, So I think that they're looking for faster route. And then you've got these guys that aren't even going to college that are creating companies, tech companies and things like that for themselves based off stuff they're just doing as a hobby, you know, ideas and concepts and just centering themselves around people. So even that push, I mean, the YouTube star right now, which we've talked about, I mean, the alternatives to business, the alternatives to income, the alternatives to how you can lead your life. Of course, church isn't going to be a part of that. You know, the, the move away from traditional news outlets and media to now, everything is on demand streaming. Well, yeah. I mean, why bother listening to the news? You're going to just assume that they're biased anyway. You know, I mean, and then this idea, this concept of everything is misinformation. So if misinformation is being portrayed on media, how much more does that concept and idea of young people relate over into the church? Right. I mean, how much do they think that, Oh, well the church is just full of misinformation. They don't actually understand and know what's going on in my world and what's going on in the world around me. And so I think that's an idea too, that he doesn't really expound upon that too much. I don't think, but yeah, we'll get more into that a little bit on the fifth one. Um, so I'll save some thoughts for, for that. <laughs> but um, yeah, the only other thing that I wanted to point out from this section, I know I said at the top, like this isn't necessarily the church's fault. Um, this like overall institution distrust, but he does point out um the cover-up of sex abuse scandals, toxic leaders. Yeah. I mean, like you were telling me about the Hillsong the documentary. The Hillsong documentary, yeah. Um, you know, prosperity gospels, like all of those sorts of things aren't helping. Yeah. Like they, even if it's not true for like our congregation, yeah, there's still just a bad taste in most young people's mouth about institutionalized Christianity. Well, let me ask you this then based off that, do you feel that younger people are moving more and more 
especially younger people that are either interested in faith or are absorbed in faith, do you see them going to larger mega style churches or do you see that trend kind of moving out and now younger people are going to start maybe looking at smaller, more intimate community driven type church establishments? I mean, I think it just depends. I do think the mega church trend is kind of over, but like, I mean, you still see in Dallas and Houston, some like massive churches compared to Nacogdoches churches. Right. So, like it's not like it's gone. But that's like a per cap. Like if we were looking at a per capita, I still don't think there's been a dent. Yeah, I mean it's it's very little, but I do see SFA students who come from that, and they're like, oh yeah, well I'm just kind of used to like, yeah, four to ten thousand people being at my church. Yeah. So like, I can't even fathom like working for a church that size. But I don't know. It's it's hard to answer that question because I think it just varies person to person. But I do think more and more we will see people valuing genuine smaller community over the big show. Yeah. I know that's, I mean, I, I think I'm kind of in that boat right now. I mean, I think people kind of want the best of both worlds. Like they want a really good speaker. They want really good music. Yeah. But I mean, we've seen study after study show that like loneliness is just going through the roof on all sorts of different charts, sociologically speaking. And I think, you know, if they had to choose between a big church with no community or a small church with community, like they're going to go the community route. Well, and that was because that's something I had a, so I had a buddy who was, uh, went to college with, and then he went to seminary, uh, in California and, you know, I went to seminary in Texas. And this is kind of like, kind of the same idea is something he's struggling with, like with his family. So he's got two kiddos and a wife and he works. Um, but this is kind of a struggle for him because he's sitting there going, the church just isn't relevant to me and what they want. And he reminisces of the times where he was a part of a small community driven, you know, didn't necessarily have a meeting space. They just met up and prayed together and did missions together and they worked together. And then when they could find a meeting space, like maybe every couple of weeks to do corporate worship and teaching, they would do that. But it wasn't, it almost wasn't this institutional thing. It was more of like a, like a town hall meeting, kind of grassroots style, man, we're just going to be together. And he even tells me, he goes, I really miss that. And I haven't been able to find that where I'm at. Um, and he even went kind of the route of looking at like, even like Eastern Orthodox type ideas because he was just so fed up with the institutionalism of the church. And, and I get it. And I, I tried to tell him, I was like, man, I, I understand where you're at. Like, I think that there are even moments as ministers, we get, we get frustrated with some of the organizational aspects. I mean, anytime you're, you're in an organization and you have to manage that, there's going to be things where you're like, golly, why do we have to deal with this? Um, but I think at the same time, you've got even guys who are my age that have been trained, that have, that have gone through this stuff and they're sitting back going, golly, now that now that the veil has been opened up and I can see the reality of what's going on behind it, I don't even want it. And I mean, you've actually you're in a prime spot because generally youth ministry speaking, you're only going to last like a year and a half to a, two years. So congratulations, you've been here a year. Yeah, <laughs> so, so it's you're all down, me my time's it's all downhill up. from here, Travis. No, it's, but I yeah. mean that's that's a trend. I mean, youth yeah. pastors normally don't make it 
a year and a half or two years in a church. And then they don't even want to do ministry after that. Yeah. Well, I'm also thinking about like Francis Chan, pastor of a mega church in Southern California. He moved to China, did some like missionary stuff, came back and was church planning in San Francisco, but it was all like home churches that would meet together in the park once a month. And, you know, outside of maybe Portland and Seattle, San Francisco is probably one of the more secular cities in America. Yeah. And from what I hear, like their church is growing like leaps and bounds, but it's like, they don't have a single building. They don't have a single person on staff. Like it's so simple compared to like what it takes to maintain a building and all of those sorts of things, which we're not saying is necessarily bad. We are sitting in a building with the lights on. Like it would be hypocritical to bash on that. AC and microphones. But there is, there's something to that for sure. Yeah. So I think that's part, but I mean, he kind of goes a little bit further into that. I think in one of the other points, Um, but let's look at number two because we, we've kind of gone a little bit on number one, number two, that point, he says we live in a more diverse, accessible and mobile world. I mean, I think we can, we can all see that. Especially post COVID, but even before that, I mean, I remember when I was in college, like even the people who walked away from Christianity, they would still consider themselves spiritual that phrase, like I'm spiritual, but not religious. Yeah. You know, like it's like, yeah, I don't go to church, but I practice meditation and I go to yoga classes and I'm sending good vibes yeah. and you know, all these cliches. And it's like, <laughs> I don't know how you send good vibes. <laughs> like do you write them down and mail them. No, you just got to think it and it manifests oh. in the universe. Well, that makes more sense. But, <laughs> sorry. Um, but like, think about it when I was saying older generations don't necessarily understand younger generations, yeah, which has probably been true for most of human history, but I think it's accelerated, yeah. especially with the internet. Um, like my grandparents or great grandparents probably knew next to nothing about Buddhism. Yeah. There's a ton of people that know a lot about Buddhism in our society because they're looking for something that's like sort of spiritual or religious, but not like the norm and this one's kind of sciencey based with meditation, but like not too weird. And so like I knew yeah. lots of people at SFA that they were reading Buddhist text and like getting really into all that stuff. And yeah, I mean, um, it's just opportunities and things that they were able to, you know, read about that previous generations weren't. And it's almost as if there's like this desire to push against the normal. You know, I think especially as generations kind of move and grow, there is this desire to push against the normal. And we can look at that from whatever perspective we want to. I mean, we could say, oh, yeah. Well, that well, probably started in the 60s. Well, yeah. Like with like Woodstock and rock and roll. and. But now it's those parents from the 60s that are going, well, why aren't you in church? You know, <laughs> well, you pushed against society, raised your kids to do that. And then, but they just took it one step further. And that's where I, I tried to explain that to somebody the other day where, um, you know, we talk about if, if certain things worked so well back then, why do they not work so well right now? Like if it was, if it was the end all be all, Hey, this is going to solve the world's problems. Why is it not doing that? And I think, but even now I think of like smartphones, the smartphones are going to be the way of the future and it's going to help us so much in business and all this stuff. 
Yeah, but on the reverse side, the side effect of that is we're disconnected from everyone else in our society. We're constantly distracted. And our anxiety and depression rate is through the roof. Yep. So it's like, yeah, you can check your email whenever you want to, but you also hate yourself because somebody else can portray a better life on Facebook than what you have. And so I think that you're seeing even a pull away from that. I think just, I mean, well, I read an article even where Netflix, so Netflix being one of the bigger streaming services that was out there starting off with DVDs and then moving into streaming, they've lost like 200,000 users. Yeah. Their stock plummeted today. Yeah. And, and they're, they're scrambling trying to figure stuff out. So now you're even seeing like, you don't have content I want. It's not helping me feel better. So why spend money on you when I can just delete you? And that's, and I don't know between that cancel culture, all this other stuff, with the access of information as rapidly as we have it, it's nothing for people to jump on a bandwagon and, and I don't know. So there's kind of two different themes there. Like one there, there's access to other worldviews. Yeah. Unlike never before, but then also like the endless distraction, whether it's Netflix or TikTok or whatever. Um, I think people just drown out the noise. Like we used to just have to be bored and like deal with our, conscience yeah but you can distract yourself into oblivion now and not have to even with podcasts (laughs) so like even with this i mean you can maybe you you should turn this off right now yeah just sit with your thoughts (laughs) stop listening to us don't listen to us anymore um but i think that's part of it i think I, i know for me there are times where i when i get home i want to sit and veg out for like 10 or 15 minutes and not think about the world around me for a second because as soon as I get out from that space, there's this that's got to get taken care of. This has got to get taken care of. This, and then you, inevitably you'll get a text from someone in crisis, or you'll get, you know, and it's just like, golly, it never stops. You know, it just never stops. And I've dreamed about, man, what would it be like to have a nine to five where you sat in a cubicle and at five you clocked out, no one bothered you. I can tell no you, one. it's soul crushing. Is it soul crushing? <laughs> so this is definitely more exciting than that. I mean, I'm thankful for all the previous jobs I have. I guess I'd need to be careful uh, of local people listening. But, <laughs> but all thirty of them. But having having a nine to five that didn't, you know, feel important or anything like, yeah, it was not good for my mental space. Well, and there's something to be said about that when you're doing what you're called to do. I mean, even if you're an entrepreneur, entrepreneurs work. I think just as hard as anybody else. Probably harder. Harder, yeah. But when you're in that space where it's what you love to do, yeah, it, then it's what you love There's to do. Nothing better. Yeah, and that's the that's the hard thing with with ministry. It's something we love to do. We don't mind, you know, as long as everybody's on happy. It's great. <laughs> it it's when they're not happy that we're like, oh my gosh. But uh, we get over that pretty quick. Um, number three. Yeah, number three. Let's keep moving. <laughs> Before I work myself into a hole. Um, Before you say something, you regret. Number three is number high-performing three, Christians yes. are simply burning out. Yeah. I, so there's a book that I read not too long back called Church Refugees. And this... Did you really? Yeah. He quotes that. Like Really? Yeah. There's a book called yeah, yeah, yeah. Church Refugees. Church Refugees. <laughs> um, and this is... So I have this book. It's not really in publication right now, so you have to find it used. But... In reading that book, I started reading it while I was in an airport coming back from Atlanta. And essentially, he was saying that the the people that are leaving your church are not the fringe people that we think are the ones 
oh, you know, they came in, they never really got plugged in, and now they're gone. It's not the fringe people that are leaving, it's the committed. The committed are walking away because, like he says here, they're essentially just getting burnt out. We keep going back to the well, using up that 20% that's willing to serve, and then we lose them, and we're like, well, what are we going to do now? You know, and then churches crumble and collapse because of it. So, yeah, what's the phrase? 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people? Yeah. And I think that's still relevantly true. But I think that's also true in business. I think that's true in, in other aspects too. I mean, I've seen a lot of people in the secular sphere of business that shouldn't really have a job yeah. at the company they work for because they, they don't put excellence into their work. I think that's called a Pareto distribution or something, something like that. Sure. I'm going to trust you on that one. Yeah. We're going to just trust Travis when he Someone says that. Someone Google me. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah, even that that quote that he has there in Church Refugees, it's, you know, they display an extreme level of dedication um, and devotion to God and religion. And they earnestly believe that the institutional church can be fixed and reclaimed. They believe it's worth fighting for right up to the point where they don't. And so I've seen even people here at Calvary at times where they get to a certain point of leadership, 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 leadership. And then you see them and they're just like, I just can't do it anymore. I mean, literally they pull back and they go, I just can't do it anymore. Yeah, this is a little bit further down than you were just reading, but he says there's a reason so many of the young people who are deconstructing were once some of the most active members of their churches, youth groups, and college ministries. Yeah, I've definitely seen that. Yeah, and I think that's just part of anytime that you get super involved in, in church and life and you start taking on the pressure of people's burdens, I mean, we, we do. I think as ministers, we take on weight of people's burdens and, the, and even their guilt and the shame that they feel about the lives that they've led. But think about the individual lay leader who has a regular nine to five and a family, volunteers their time up here to serve and do, and they have to take on all this extra weight, not including the weight that they take on, but they feel this burden and this pressure to see people continue to grow and live their lives and uh, before the Lord. And it's just, they just get terribly burned out on it. There's a lot of pressure to take on. Yeah. And there, there's one more thing that he says at the end that it's not, not just young people. So in the, the study that he quotes, he says 38% of church leaders have considered leaving ministry in the past year alone. Oh yeah. Um, that's kind of low compared to some of the other numbers I've read. Like at one point during the peak of Corona, um, I think I read somewhere that it was like 50%. So like half of ministers, regardless of age, have wanted to quit in the past year. And part of it was not understanding or having the resources to adapt during that time. A lot of, I mean, there was a point where, where we were doing our television studio. I was trying to reach out to some of these pastors who didn't have equipment, didn't have resources, didn't have ways to reach their church. I was offering to say, you contact me. I'll find a way to record your message for you, help you put it on Facebook, help you stay relevant and keep going during this time. No one ever took me up on that offer. But I mean, I was at a point where I was like, I I don't want your church to suffer just because you don't have a resource to do something. Let's find a way to help you keep going and, and help you keep growing and doing. Um, because I think there are some small communities that could have really benefited from that. So, but I, I mean, during that time you found people that thrive on interpersonal connection 
and all that's been taken away. And all of a sudden you feel like, well, I'm not doing anything for my church. I can't see my people. I can't be around my people. I can't minister to my people because I mean, even our own pastor, he struggled a lot during that time. Everything that he knew to do for successful ministry was almost just taken away from him. And he's sitting there juggling going, what do I do now? Yeah. And so he spent a lot of time. Preach in front of people, can't go to the hospital, can't go to the nursing home. I mean, what he could do was just make a ton of phone calls. And so that's what he did. He just, he's just always on the phone, always texting people, always sending out emails because he desired to keep in connection with people. Um, And that was a hard, that was a hard season for all of us, I think here. I mean, I know you weren't here at that time, but I think all of us, I mean, we lost two staff during that, right after that time. Um, we, I mean, it was a big struggle for us. Yeah. So anyway, we could, I mean, we could keep going on the whole burnout aspect, but. Well, I was just thinking about like, I mean, we've talked about in a week or two talking about the whole idea of service. Yeah. And it's not like we're just trying to guilt more people into doing more things at the church, but it's like, we all have like our handful of volunteers Yeah, that we ask a lot of yeah and it's like i've got you know three or four couples that do a lot with youth ministry and i'm really thankful that they do what they do but like my biggest fear is that they burn out and then i can't find a replacement yeah so well and and when i think about service i'm happy if 20 percent of our people serve inside the church but i would love to see the other 80 percent serving outside the church or at least outside the church walls outside the building itself i, I to me that's a lot of where the church in America uh, lacks is there is not this serving inside the wall, like outside the walls of the church. We do a lot internally and we do a lot to maintain the internal and that's good. We want to be a hub. I mean, I've always said that the church building is the biggest ministry tool that we have, but now what we're we're reading and seeing with younger generations, we have to be more active outside the ministry tool, still use it as a way to get people in and grow them and help them grow in relationship. But I mean, if we're not doing ministry Monday through Saturday and we're only doing it on Sunday for a couple of hours, we're going to miss a large majority of people. Yeah. So, the hard part about that though is like, there's probably people doing things every single day of the week that we just don't know about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but I think part of that too is like, let, I mean, we want to know about that. You know, yeah. we want to know, I mean, what are you doing during the week? Cause it, it could be something where we just get, we don't really take over, but we just support you in prayer and support you in even our own attendance to some things. So anyway, so, but that's, that's a conversation for another week. And, and I want to look at more of like, you know, what does scripture talk about when it comes to serving in the, in the early church? How do they communicate that? How do they do that? And so we'll, we'll spend some time with that. But number four, number four was a fun one. The prideful, the prideful prioritization of conformity over unity. I love this like alliteration that he's got going. <laughs> it's real fun. Prideful prioritization. Yeah. So this is an interesting one for a lot of reasons. Um, I really liked this quote. Like, what are we talking about? Conformity over unity. He says, here's a test. If everyone in your church is expected to look, talk, think, and believe exactly like you, then your church isn't as welcoming as you assume. Instead, you've created a culture that sacrifices unity for conformity. Yeah, but that's true. I mean, I think that 
I, I would say here at Calvary, we've been pretty flexible on a lot of those things. I would think that you might have certain pockets here and there that would be like, man, they just don't respect this. They don't respect that. They're not that. But then you've got other pockets that are like, hey, I'm just glad that you're here. Like you really need this in your life. I'm glad that you get to come be here. Uh, and I think there's a fine line to that. I mean, obviously you don't want like to show up, you know, naked and flip flops to church. But uh, but I think even even still, we're a place where we're trying to lead people to the cross, and that's gonna that path, that journey is gonna look different for and each it's individual. Gonna be messy. Yeah, yeah, and it's gonna look. I mean, that's the thing. I was talking to Melina just the other day and I said, I feel like at times we are focusing on the same thing and we want the same desires, but it's almost like we're walking down two different paths to get there. And then at moments it intersects and it's great, but then it splits off again. And we're just trying to figure out in those moments of splitting off. I think that what we're seeing it and, and that's just explain that a little more. What are the two paths you think we're going yes. down? Well, I think that for, like from if I'm talking about from a personal standpoint, I think that there are two different backgrounds of growing up. There's two different backgrounds of being a, a kid and watching parental supervision. So when you marry together, you have to try to navigate those backgrounds as well as do what is essential for your family. I think it's the same in the church. You are going to have a different spiritual upbringing and background and relationship with church than what I have. But together as ministers, we have to come in and say, okay, what is the the good path for our church? What's the good point that we need to focus on and, and push our church towards, especially like in growth and discipleship? But you may have a different avenue to get there than I have. So that's where we have to kind of talk through those things. And that's why sometimes it does take a little bit longer for stuff to happen because we're looking at every single option we can instead of just throwing spaghetti against the wall and going, oh, cool, it's stuck. It must be good. We're trying to think through every single thing. So I think with an individual that comes in, they may come from a mega church and they're coming back to a church that's, you know, a tenth of the size of what they are used to. Well, there may be some things that they carry baggage wise in to that that we have to be careful with and we have to be understandable of. Then you may have a guy who says, I grew up in an abusive church that abused kids and families abused kids. And so the word church in and of itself does not have a very positive connotation to it. Or you may have somebody come in and say, I remember, and the only thing I remember from church growing up was the minister embezzled, you know, $400,000 and then ran off with the secretary. So that's what they have an understanding of what ministers do. I think whatever that baggage looks like, then we have to help them come alongside and go, okay, let's look at your journey here. I don't have that story. Like me personally, I don't have the story of, yeah, I'm used to all those things. Yeah, been there, seen that, done that. So I have to navigate the language that they're going to bring in. I have to navigate the appearance that they're going to bring in. I have to navigate the reservations they're going to have just from walking into the door. Um, so by giving them a peppermint a bulletin and saying, we're so glad you're here. <laughs> I think there's a little bit more that needs to come around for that. There's that personal conversation that has to be had. And when they say, yeah, church is the worst thing in the world to me. And I think most ministers are crooks. All right, let's talk through why you believe that. Because I, I can't say that I can't disagree with you to some extent on that, but 
let's talk through why you believe that. And I think that you have to be willing to, when they dress, say, or act a certain way against what you feel a Christian should act, dress, and then you're taking note and you're just helping them grow one step further every time you meet. You may have somebody come in though, man, they're on fire for the Lord. I mean, they're ready to rock and roll right there. Put me in a place of service. Let me do this. I'm willing to do whatever. And you have to take that and say, man, all right, your path looks completely different. I'm not having to go baby steps with you on this. I'm pushing you to the limits of your faith and really challenging you. So I think there's just different paths in your church. So for Easter Sunday, we had 383 people on Sunday morning. That's 383 different spiritual journeys that we as ministers have to foster on a regular basis. That's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think people don't see that. So going back even to service, when people see that, they have to be able to come alongside and do that. But if we were to look at those people and say, listen, I'm glad you're here. If we checked them at the door and said, but I've already heard you say this curse word and you smell a little bit like alcohol and I heard what you said to your kids um, and I know kind of how you are as a perception of who you are in the community and how you deal with business. Unfortunately, we're not going to let you be able to be a part of our community. Well, yeah, they're going to be like, well, this is stupid. But if we can look at someone and say, look, I know your life is messy. I can't say that my life is perfect. What can I do to help you gain a better perspective on life? Do you mm-hmm. want a better perspective on life? I think that some people have never had that option given to them. I think they make a decision. The church ousts them and says, well, I'm sorry, but you can't be a part of our congregation because you sinned. Yeah. It's so <laughs> funny because it's like, I mean, you think about all of the different times that Jesus was, I mean, it literally says like eating with tax collectors and sinners. Yeah. And like, and getting criticized for it. Yeah. But I mean, like whether it's, you know, someone who's more or less embezzling from the Jewish people, there's several instances where he interacted with women who didn't have a good reputation. Yeah. I mean, there's so many times where Jesus just shows this like unbelievable compassion in how many times does Paul say like imitate me as I imitate Christ but yet there's also this like double standard of I don't know I think it may even come from a good place of like wanting to take sin seriously yeah it's like because we're not also trying to sweep it under the rug and pretend like everything's fine and that doesn't matter but it's like can you still show grace and love to someone who's not in a good place and can that be welcomed in your church well and yeah even looking back at this the idea of Jesus how many times did he do something like when he talked about children, let the children come to me. The disciples were like, you don't need to be bothered with that. You don't need to be bothered with that. No, no, no. They're, they're, they're literally nothing. They're valued little in society. Don't, don't, y'all don't waste your time on that. Like Jesus does, does not need to be bothered with kids. And he's like, no, that's why I'm here. You know? Um, so I think even the disciples were part of this idea of like, well, hold on, Jesus. They're not that, that part, we don't want that person. Like they're, they're dirty. Like we don't want that in our, in our group. And Jesus is like, yeah, it's not really up to you. So I think that it's, yeah. Even though the disciples were basically nobodies in their own society. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, I mean, I, there's 90,000 days where I feel like I'm like, even in my own community, I'm recognized by some, but I can walk into Walmart and Kroger still around here and not know a soul. And that's kind of scary. I think too, because I want to know people, but you know, we still live in a big enough community where you can get lost and you can hide even as a minister. 
Um, but to me, when I look at that idea, Jesus never, Jesus never centered around and said, okay, you guys are my 12. You look enough like me. I'm going to use you guys and we're going to build a church of people that look like me. And when we do that, then I'll die on the cross for you guys that look like me. And then you guys that look like me will have all the redemption and, and all that. He didn't do that. And so I think that that is where we have to make sure that, that we're always setting ourselves personally up and we're setting our churches up to be a place where people can feel welcome as they are, not welcome as they think they should be. And I've had many conversations with people in our own community. When I talk to them and say, Hey, come on to church. Like, just, just come hang out with me. I'll sit with you. Like, you know, I'll lead you through. I'll show you every little bit of what we do behind the scenes and everything so that you are like, there is nothing hidden. Like you don't feel like you're being sucked into something, but they feel so much guilt and shame in their life. They're like, well, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I can't tell you how many people have said something like, yeah, I know I need to be in church, but like, I got to get some stuff straightened out. I got to get some stuff straightened out first in my life. And that that's hard. It, so either the church has, either they have a high perception of, of what they should be like before they even walk through the doors or they've been burned by church at some point in their life. Either way, I think that we need to look at the spirit of unity that is in Jesus. And we need to look at the spirit of Christ that exists in all of us. I'm going to have a different journey in faith than even some of these guys in my older generations you know, that went through wars, that went through battle, that went through crazy amounts of things that I have never seen. Yet here they are on fire for Jesus on a regular basis. I don't know if I could do that. Having gone through some of the stuff they've been through, I don't know if I could do that and come out okay on the other side. Um, and so it, to me, those guys are ones that I'm like, what do you have because there is something that you've done in your life that has caused you to stay strong in your relationship with Jesus. And that's what I want to know about. So, but that's that spirit of unity. I don't look at them and go, well, you don't say or do things the way that I think a church should act or say or do. So I think it's reversed. I think you've got generational things that happen there. You've got one generation saying, well, you don't operate and do things the way I do it. And then you've got younger generations going, well, you don't operate and do things the way I do. <laughs> so it's like this back and forth between kids and parents. It's super fun. Yeah, so I think the fifth and final one kind of intersects with that idea of unity. Yeah. Um, especially, let's say, since 2016. Okay. So, number five is the acceptance of political idolatry and conspiracy theories in Christian Ooh, communities. I love conspiracy theories. What's your favorite conspiracy theory? I don't know. Some Like, just that's interesting or one that yeah. i might actually sort of one that's interesting not one that you might actually believe in but like one that's just interesting um i mean it's been a while since i've been on a conspiracy theory um rabbit trail down youtube or whatever i don't know i always thought the jfk stuff was interesting that is a very interesting one that is a very interesting one what about you yeah so i think the conspiracy theory that i am probably most in tune with recently is so there's one about mattress firm because there's so many of them within a small uh, area and like really all across the U S so you can have one like in one spot and then one in another spot, literally like half a mile from one another. 
And the theory pretty much is, is that they're just a place for laundering money. Not so much that they're a place that sells mattresses because of the frequency of how many there are that mattress firm is actually just one big money laundering conglomerate. Just a giant front for... Just a giant front. Drug running or something. Or people running. People running. Some sort of trafficking (laughs) of some sort. Some sort of trafficking of certain things, but... We could even say that here in town, though, about like the donut shops. There's like oh, 50 yeah. billion donut shops. And I mean, how hard is it to get one donut right? But each <laughs> donut, every time I go by a donut shop, it's busy. Yeah. Like in the morning. It could be out in the middle of nowhere. There's somebody in the drive-thru getting a sprinkled donut. People I'm around like, here like their carbs and sugar. Oh, man. Carbs and sugar. Well, you know, I did the iced coffee thing Yeah. at the plant shed and... I think out of all the people that wanted iced coffee, only two people wanted it without nothing in it. The other like 30 people were like... And I was one of those people. <laughs> yeah, you were one of them. <laughs> and then the other 30 people were like, I need some sugar. Okay, let's let's get it going. But anyway. So where do you see the political idolatry and or conspiracy theories impacting the church? I, I think that there's elements of that in everything. I think you're going to find... Because people are going to bring stuff into church. I think they're going to bring stuff from the outside into church. They're going to bring stuff from what they see on the news or what they see in media. Um, Even what they believe politically, that's going to creep into the life of your church, just like everything else. So I think that the elements of it are there. But the key word that he has in that question that a lot of people outside the church are seeing is there's, it's not that there's political views in the church, but that there's idolatry. Um, and that's kind of where I think that we as a church need to ask ourselves, you know, are we holding political platforms above kingdom platforms? I think there's some churches out there that do that. I definitely think there's some churches out there that do that. Um, and What's funny is like your location has a lot to do with like what you think that is. Yeah. So like around here in the Bible Belt, it's conservative, right? We're afraid of our freedom of speech and freedom of religion getting taken away. Yeah. We're afraid of, um, you know, like people want the pro-life thing pushed real hard. And so it's like, well, of course, like Jesus is a Republican. But yeah. I know people from when I lived in San Francisco and I... I follow a, a church uh, in Portland who coming from like two very secular progressive cities, I was seeing things on my social media from these places where, you know, they're talking about the Jews were supposed to welcome the immigrant and things of that nature. So they're pushing like they would be mortified or they were mortified whenever Trump got elected. And so like, for them, it was like, no, 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 we want to care for the poor. We want to take care of people. We want housing to be solved, you know, like all of these things. And from their point of view, it's like, of course, Jesus would have been a Democrat. Like, yeah. which is so here. If opposite. You, yeah, if you were to say that here, they would be like, <gasps> yeah, how dare you take my Jesus away from me? But my point is like, just depending on where you grew up in the worldview that you have. Yeah. And I don't just mean worldview theologically, but politically yeah it's like everyone thinks it's like oh yeah jesus is on my political side yeah of course yeah i mean that's cultural it is but i mean think about like you know we have that freedom to do that here like we have the freedom in the south to be conservative they have the i mean i don't want to say they but i think that 
whatever we believe to be true politically, we have to be careful how we marry politics and the church. I think that has to be, I mean, what we talked about even in the, the recent uh, election in 2016 with, with Trump, you know, you had prominent SBC Southern Baptist church leaders speaking out against some of his things. And it wasn't so much that they were speaking out against him, but it was speaking out against the reaction of the church to him. And we saw where large churches within Southern Baptist life were holding resources back from national convention, unless individuals, mostly Russell Moore, mostly Russell Moore. Yeah. But because, well, you're going to let him sit in a position of, authority. He got so fed up with the politics of the SBC. He left that I'm done. I'm not, I'm not going to do this. And Russell Moore is probably one of the smarter, uh, uh, one of the smartest, most political savvy guys. Yeah. He's, he's really intelligent. I've got a few of his books and I always liked Russell Moore. Like I was sad when he left, but I know he dealt with a lot of things behind the scenes. I mean, he even got like death threats. Like it's crazy how it's not passionate. Some of those people were, but, um, but I mean, I, I guess it could make sense because when you've got people that their saving grace in life is their country, and I get it. I mean, especially for people that have fought for their country and they have they have done all of these things to see their country succeed, and then it doesn't take but a small group of people to come in and change the whole dynamic for everyone. I'd be kind of mad too, you know. Um, but I think when you step back and you see the kingdom mindset, especially from for people looking outside the church, they're going to have a political kind of bent when they look in the church anyway. But if they looked in the church and saw this political aggressiveness, especially as it relates to a national politics scale, man, they might be super turned off on that. Because again, they're looking for healing. They're looking for grace. They're looking for some sort of redemptiveness to their life. And I think that that needs to be more of the priority so it's, but I see where it can be hard to isolate your, your understanding of your country and your understanding of your church and to isolate those two things and say, my country, I pray for my country. I, I seek the, the good of the leadership of my country. And I, I pray. Yeah. We're not saying you can't be political yeah. or have political opinions or anything like that, but there comes a point where the way in which you treat politics as like the end all that it's actually harmful to the church and evangelism because I mean, at the end of the day are I, like, I don't believe I love my country, but I don't believe my country can save me. And so I'm going to want to put my hope and my rest in something that can save me. That's Jesus. And so I, I will fight for my country. I will fight for great moral values in my country. And I will, I will seek those things above anything else because I feel like that's, most closely related to Christianity and I want and I want that to be evident, but I'm I'm not going to put my saving grace in my country. I'm gonna yeah. put that in Jesus. There was a, a lady he quotes in the article named Amy Peterson who was a missionary and she said, People of my generation aren't leaving the church because of their devious atheist professors or because their devious atheist professors got to them, which I think that was the uh the fear like when I was in college it's like it's, yeah. it's those philosophy and biology professors be careful the heathens but then she continues but because they saw a church more interested in defending political power than in loving their neighbors 
Yeah. And so that's that's kind of what we're talking about. Um, another super interesting survey that he quotes here. Now, this was one, I don't know what your reaction was to it, but when I read this, like, I just hope it's a bad survey. And he, and he gives a link in the article if you want to go look it up for yourself. But I don't know how the survey was done. I don't know how many people were um, actually surveyed. I hope it was like 20 this. people. Yeah, I hope. But in this survey that was done just last year, it said that one in four Protestant Christians in the U.S. agreed with the statement that the government, media, and financial worlds in the U.S. are controlled by a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who run a global child sex trafficking operation. (laughs) Golly. 25% of Protestants believe that to be true. How? Maybe they've invested in mattress firm. Uh Uh-huh. I think that well, like how if if that's true, which I'm, my gut it, tells me it's not. But even if it's like remotely close, well, think about how many millions of Protestant evangelicals there are in the in our country, and it says how many one in four, one in four, yeah, twenty five percent. So that means out of every, let's say three hundred people sitting out there on a Sunday, that what 75 of them believe that to be true that's a that's a very scary statistic i mean like you know not to just bash on government but it's like our government can't hardly get anything agreed upon but right. you think they can operate a <laughs> satan worshiping pedophile ring <laughs> like the republicans and democrats are doing that together yeah. and fox news and cnn are doing that together and like everybody's <laughs> working together to make sure that nobody gets caught yeah you know yeah i don't see that i don't see that happening um if it is happening i would be super terrified i mean that's <laughs> we're getting into like a 1984 stuff then because i mean if everything happens under your nose and everything changes i I think that kind of goes, I think that does play into people's fear though, that people do get a little bit paranoid and they get a little bit afraid. I mean, I'm not saying that government and media can't do bad things and try to cover it up. Oh yeah. But like, that's a massive claim for 25% of Protestants to people, believe. People have been trying to cover stuff up, cover stuff up since Jesus. Like that's not, that's yeah, not Yeah, and uncommon. it never works. Yeah. So. <laughs> So we, we can't sit back and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe they would cover that up. They're always trying to cover stuff up. Well, probably related to that, he also quotes an MIT um, review that found that 19 of the top 20 Christian Facebook pages were run by Eastern European troll farms and Russian operatives that were specifically targeted um, or targeting U.S. Christians via Facebook ads to spread misinformation. Wow. 19 of the top 20 Christian Facebook pages were run by trolls in another country who were intentionally trying to divide our country. So the best thing that you can do is just put your phone down and just walk away. Go go garden. Go do something else. Go delete your Facebook. Yeah. yeah. Go go meditate somewhere in the quiet away from any sort of news anything. I think that that's that's a very interesting piece because um it's not hard for us to believe what's right in front of us um, and even to take on misinformation. I always tell people there's two sides to every story. I mean, every story there's going to be what you hear and then there's going to be what the other person encountered. And then there's somewhere in the middle there, there's reality. Um, 
so sure and i mean i get different perspectives yeah. like especially from news outlets but like i don't know about you but i know of at least a couple people that they'll come be like did you hear this news story and they'll just say something absolutely like ridiculous and my first question is like where did you get that from <laughs> where what because it's like that's not true like i can tell just by the title of whatever you're telling me like well it's just like, so outlandish that it's like yeah there are literally people the russians call it desinformatia uh-huh. which is just fun to say but like they have a whole like they think of it like a war campaign yeah but it's just trying to get us to destroy ourselves yeah, it's propaganda. Yeah. To destroy yourself. It's like National Enquirer. Like, I always think of it like they remember those when you would see and you would look at like mom with three headed baby, you know. <laughs> and it's just to me, I look at it as like I think of that movie Men in Black, like the old movie Men in Black with Mill Smith. And yep. uh, I can't think of his name right now. But yeah, I know you're talking about. I can't think of it either. They, he, Will Smith gets hired. He goes to the tabloids and he pulls up all of the, uh, pulls up all the like the, made up news stuff and he's like man these are like reliable reports you know and it's like you know squid babies and things like that <laughs> and they're like this is proof of aliens and uh and they use that as a way to um they use that as a way to like find out information and, and things like that so what we would see as a joke they saw as like oh this is real yeah. like you just got to open your eyes to it and i think that's i think that some people have that interpretation of certain media things I mean, I honestly, I don't really watch much media. I find that to be mostly depressing anyway. But it's so interesting to me that they like specifically chose Christian Facebook pages to create. Like there's something about the church that's almost like specifically targeted in that. Well, and I think there's that idea that that the United States is still a Christian nation. Um, I think that we are moving past that. Um, quickly. Quickly. And I think that there is a big push and a campaign to reinvent ourselves past that. Um, but the rest of the world probably still sees us in that light. Right. Even if the percentage of Christians is dropping. Well, we do operate so much differently than other, other parts of our world still. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I find that interesting that, I mean, I, I can see where somebody looking from the outside in could see the, the internal, I guess, conflict politically within the church and then the way that they believe the church just just takes whatever's told them and just runs with it especially if you've grown up in that i mean because we're talking about people that are deconstructing their faith right so obviously they've grown up in that and it has left such a negative impression to them that they want nothing to do with it i think that that speaks a lot to what we have to do as a church we have to focus on kingdom stuff and not so much on everything else I think that's really what it boils down. I think if, if every church could have a kingdom mindset and focus and say, we are going to love people. We are going to extend grace to everyone. We are going to work hard to grow in discipleship and in community. Um, I think that people would have a different take on that. But like what you said, a lot of them only see, well, y'all are just a bunch of wonky, uh, right-wing political nut jobs who you know want your way and you know i think it was the german theologian Karl bart who said like every christian should carry the bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other and his point was like it takes both a balanced approach of like being grounded in the scripture but also like keeping up with current events and i think we could add to that in a digital age like knowing 
where your resources and media is coming from. Um, I mean, like I always try to tell people who are willing to, like if you lean conservative and most of your news outlets are conservative, go read some liberal news outlets. Yeah. If you lean liberal, go read some conservative outlets. Like you're saying, like the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Um, And I think if we can just sort of have a more approachable grace filled yeah outlook on the world so like at the end of this um section he he quotes carrie newhoff who said um when christians lose their mind people lose their faith <laughs> like let's just act like reasonable rational people like it's <laughs> it's not that much extra work like, yeah don't trust the first thing you see on facebook or twitter or wherever you're getting news from like just be normal <laughs> like i think that uh, i yeah but, i mean we're laughing about it but it's like this was a big enough deal that like young people are like no this is a problem yeah yeah and, and i guess that's where it's hard for me because i sit back and i go golly that's the wildest thing that anybody could ever think that church does that but i guarantee you there's some churches out there that that's their thing i mean that is their push and um when you see i guess when you can see political powers as flawed human beings they may be in positions of authority, but at the core of who they are as individuals, they're flawed. Then it becomes a little bit more realistic for you because you're not looking at it as, um, as somebody who's got it all figured out and they're going to take care of everything. You're looking at it as I, I don't have anything like th- this person isn't any better than I am. Um, they're still, they're still going to have to answer <laughs> for their life just like I'm gonna have to answer for mine. So I think that puts it in a better perspective. You, you can, you can kind of put a little bit back in terms of, uh, your trust and your hope in somebody when you can put them on the same plane and the same level as you. Um, especially when it comes to Jesus, you know, at the cross, we're all equal. And so we have to make sure that we're not elevating people to a position, uh, that, they should not be in our life. And I think that's what it boils down to. I, I mean, I'm going to go back and say it again. My savior is in Jesus. That's my saving grace. That's my salvation. My eternity is in that. Um, there will be a time where my house, my car, um, my children, my dog, all that's going to turn to dust. It's going to pass away. Um, but the gospel will not do that. And so, I'm going to put my trust in something that is a rock that is solid and not in something that, I mean, yeah, think about it. How old is our country anyway? When you're looking at all of human history, not that old. Yeah. So we, we still have a long way to go. So to think that we've got it figured out in a short amount of time. Nah. Yeah. If it's like, it's, it's probable that at some point the U S will collapse. Yeah. I mean, Rome never thought they would. Greece never thought, I mean, I guess Greece is still a country, but not like the Spartans, you know, like every major superpower, like England used to rule like a fourth of the world. And now they're just a little bitty island. Like every country goes through changes and seasons and the U S probably won't be any different. The question will just be, how does the church respond in this moment? He kind of ends the article talking about, um, the idea of reconstruction. Yeah. So just cause somebody deconstructs a little bit doesn't mean that they can't reconstruct and he just says that the church has to be a safe place where people can have questions and raise concerns and we don't like shoo them out the door. Like 
somebody comes and they're like, hey, I don't know if I believe in God. Or if they're like, hey, I believe in God, but I don't know if I believe the Bible is like literally true. Like we have to know what we believe, but also be like, hey, that's okay. Like, can we talk about it? Can we do a study together? Yeah. Like, can we can we meet those people that have deconstructed where they're at and help them reconstruct into a healthy place? Well, and I think it's important to remember too that anytime that you reconstruct something, it's not going to be the exact same. No, and it shouldn't be. Yeah, usually. And, and so that's the mindset we have to walk into. Sometimes we think I'm going to help that person out, but we want them to be back to where they were before, you know. And I Depends think, where they came from. Right, right. But I think it's like we want them to be back to this idea of where they were before. And I think anytime that you reconstruct something, it may have a lot of differences to it. And honestly, it may turn out more beautiful than it was before it even needed that. And I think that's what we have to remember, that even though it may not turn out exactly the way that we think it should, if that's how Jesus is working in their journey and their path, then that's what we have to trust. And that's what we have to rest on. Um, but again, I think it just focuses in on us making sure that Christ is that center. Um, I don't know. I mean, that the political sphere can be a, t- a tricky one oh, for sure. in the church. And so I think that we have to tread lightly when we discuss that. Um, but I think part of it too is Christians, true believers in Christ need to be more active uh, in, in their culture, in their world. Um, they need to be active to see change happen within their country. Um, and in, it starts in their communities. Yeah, though. less on Facebook, more in person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it starts where you're at in your community and it spreads from there. So who knows? I mean, I think there's an answer in there somewhere. But uh, if, yeah. they, if they're even trying to figure it out, like, <laughs> like we, we obviously are still trying to figure it out too. It's in the sure. article. So anyways, well, any other thoughts, questions? No, just one thing that I, I was kind of thinking about with the political piece was, you know, like my dad was an elected official. Like I've yeah. been in and around politics, like literally my whole life. And one thing that I did sort of in college and in seminary that I think helped me sort of figure out that tightrope of theology and politics was reading biographies on C.S. Lewis, who um, fought in World War One, helped in World War Two for England, and then also Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian who fought against the Nazis, so against his own country to a degree. Um, and so reading how those two guys, who were both brilliant in their own right, like how they sort of navigated that path you know obviously every generation is different every bit of history is different but there's a lot of wisdom that we can glean from church history so if anybody's interested in that go read some biographies yeah (laughs) read just read and and enjoy reading so books are good yeah all right well uh this has always been a fun one for us and like i said as we get into the next couple weeks we're hopefully going to have some other topics of you know maybe even some texas baptist history um, as well as what it means to serve and things like that. So be looking out for more episodes coming up. But uh, if you have any thoughts or questions for us, any concerns or conundrums, uh, if you're in dire dilemma and you need us to help you answer a question, uh, we're here, we're available, and we'd love to talk with you about that. So you can send us an email and call the office. Come find us on a Sunday morning, and uh, we'd love to chat it up with you. Other than that, guys, we hope that you are enjoying this episode. We hope that you're enjoying today, and we pray that you have a blessed week.